passage today is a tough one, 2 Samuel, as we continue on through our study of First and Second Samuel, it's going to be 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 23. This is a section often skipped, so maybe you've never heard a sermon on this part before. If so, I'm encouraged. Please stand as we, as we look at this together, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13 and following, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then a servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Let's pray. Father, as we read this difficult and touching passage, I pray that you would open our minds to being taught by your word and spirit, open our hearts to accept the truths of what we see from your word and to be be thereby challenged even if it means changing some of our own assumptions. Lord, may your word return fully having accomplished its purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, sometimes the easiest and best way to go through a difficult passage is to go a few verses at a time, work our way through them, and ask questions as we go, see where the word takes us. And that's what we're going to do together today. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 12 and David's sin with Bathsheba. Not only did David commit adultery, but when Bathsheba became pregnant, David also committed murder. And as a result, God sent the prophet Nathan to David and announced that he would discipline David for those sins. And that the child resulting from the adultery would die. And that's why we read in verse 15, these words, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And immediately we must ask the question, but why the child? Why didn't David himself face the judgment of God? 
And I'm amazed at how many commentators get past that question and simply move on to David's response to the judgment. Was the child not innocent of David's sin, we ask? Does not Ezekiel 18.20 say that an individual does not have to bear the sins of his ancestors, but only his own sin before God? Does the killing of this innocent child suggest that God is unjust? Well, before we address David's specific situation, let me just acknowledge that this would not be the first time that a child died as a result of God's judgment. Right? All of the firstborn children of Egypt died during the final plague of the Exodus. God commanded King Saul and the Israelites to destroy the Amalekites and kill, we read in the Bible, man, woman, infant, and nursing child, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. God took the lives of many infants and children during the flood in Noah's time. So really, we can expand this question of taking the life of David's child to all the instances recorded in the Old Testament and ask the question, is God cruel? Is he unjust? And I know that you instinctively will respond no to that question. You and I would both say that God is good and holy and just, and we would be right. But how do we defend such a God from claims of cruelty? And injustice. Well, first we need to address some of the assumptions that critics or skeptics make who call God cruel and unjust. Essentially, the argument goes like this a good, loving, just God would not kill an innocent child because to do so is always evil. And there are two problems with that argument. The first is the assumption that a child is innocent. And the second is the assumption that the death of someone innocent is always evil. The Bible says that only three people have ever been born innocent in the sense of being free from sin in any form and and thus free from judgment under God, and that is Adam, Eve, and Jesus. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and as a result, all of their descendants, with the exception of Jesus, whose birth was supernaturally brought about, through the Holy Spirit, were conceived and born in sin. So there is no such thing since Adam and Eve's fall as a truly innocent child. The second assumption that the death of someone innocent is always evil is based upon the belief that this life is all that there is. And so to end an innocent person's life is therefore cruel. But we do not believe as followers of Christ that this life is all that there is. The Bible tells us that we are both body and soul and that our spirit will live forever. So far less importance is what happens to us during our short earthly existence. And of far greater importance is our eternal future. If a child lives but a brief moment in this world but spends eternity with God, is that evil? Well, Paul would write in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. And guys, uh, the slides aren't on. In Philippians 1, 22 to, or 21 to 23, we read, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So here is Paul saying that the end of his life would be far better than its continuation because he knew where he would spend eternity. A slightly different way to respond to the claim that God is unjust is to understand the concept of covenant. The Bible shows how we are covenantally bound to one another. I mentioned earlier that as descendants of Adam and Eve, we are born in sin. And we face the consequences of our first parents' transgression. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to one man. No, it says to all men. So every man and woman born because they are covenantally, federally related to Adam and Eve are born with a sin nature. We know that God says that the blessings or the curses are visited upon future generations due to the actions of those in the present. It is always a sobering reality for us as parents to realize that we have an impact upon our future generations. Listen to Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9.16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins, and then he adds, and for the sins of our fathers. In other words, there is this covenantal buildup, if you will. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now it's true That Ezekiel 18.20 says that the soul who sins shall die and the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And we have to be able to correlate those two. We have to put them together. And think about what Ezekiel 18 is saying. When it comes to our eternal future, We are each held accountable for ultimately our own sins. But Ezekiel 18 doesn't address the aspect of generational cursing or blessing. It simply is a reality that there are some children that are born into difficult, wicked situations made even worse by the generational sins of their parents and grandparents, while others are born into blessed homes made even better by the generational faithfulness of their parents and their grandparents. As we read in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. There is this covenantal inertia, if you will, that goes on of God's blessing and faithfulness into generations and repays to their face those who hate them, him by destroying them. So when you put that together, we are covenantally related to our parents and grandparents and ultimately to Adam and Eve. That means that we are all born with a sin nature, but on top of that, we are each born into a context. Some of us are born into believing homes 
and experience the blessing of God upon our homes as a result of our parents and our grandparents' faith, and others of us are born into non-believing homes, God can still work graciously. That's the beauty of Ezekiel 18. God can still redeem out of a difficult situation. And each person is ultimately accountable for his own sin. But none of us are born completely independent of what has gone on before us. And in returning to David's situation in 2 Samuel 12, this little boy was born into a context. He was born as a result of a murderous, adulterous affair. God, who is holy and just, could not respond lightly to David's sin. As verse 14 says, David had utterly scorned the Lord. And yet, David was the king that the Lord had anointed, granting him great riches, military success, but more importantly, had given him a promise. Remember, as we saw a few weeks ago, given him a promise to establish his throne forever. It was necessary that God be both faithful to his promise and at the same time show that the depravity that David displayed in that sinful action was unacceptable in the holy line that he represented. I would even suggest that a son born from David's adultery would have sat uncomfortably on the throne as David's successor. As he grew in strength and stature, division and shame likely could have been expected by his mere presence and what he represented. Ultimately, we have to trust that God is good. And we have to remember what we've already discussed, that this physical life is not all that there is. It was the most glorifying thing to God to judge David's sin by taking the life of this young child. Now look at how David responded. Verse 16 says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted, and he went in, and he lay all night on the ground. And we should see here David displaying this a change of heart, returning back to God. For months, for months, David had hidden his sin from everyone around him. He certainly hadn't confessed it to God. After all, the Lord is sending Nathan to confront him with the sin, to say, I know But once Nathan confronted him, David went home and compares these two things. The Lord has said, I'm going to build you a house. And remember his response in the previous chapter. Who am I? Who is David that you should show your favor to me, to my house, to build me a house, a lasting dynasty? He goes from hearing that to learning that the Lord has disapproved of him. And as we would expect in a believer... He is brokenhearted and he is humbled. And when you face the discipline of God, how do you respond? Children, how do you respond when your parents discipline you? Do you grow angry? Do you resent being corrected in an attempt to justify your actions? I met with someone outside of the church this past week whose response to God's discipline has been depression and bitterness. 
He believed that God should have accepted his sincere confession and released him from the consequences of his sin. But while God will and has forgiven us through Jesus Christ, we often must face the consequences that God is not obligated to remove. And the fact that we must face these consequences does not mean that we can't pray that God would be merciful. So David seeks God on the behalf of himself and of his child. I believe it means that David is both praying that God will relent from this judgment and let the boy live, but also that he's praying for his eternal soul in the face of God's disapproval. Perhaps God would not carry out the sentence. After all, the Bible gives us many examples, right, of God responding to brokenhearted prayer. We think of Hezekiah, who was told that he would die because of his disobedience, and he falls upon his face and prays to God, and God extends his life. When Assyria repented after the news of God's impending judgment, God did not destroy their nation. No matter how inevitable some future outcome may seem, we are never prohibited from praying that the Lord would stop his course of action and return a blessing instead. In fact, I think that that kind of prayer is a, is a proper response to God's judgment, even while we acknowledge the natural course, and even just course, is to fully experience the consequences of our sin. In turning to God in prayer, we respond properly because we acknowledge our sin and at least pray for the strength of God to face those consequences and acknowledge His will be done. So children, I asked you a moment ago how you respond to the discipline of your parents, and I encourage you to respond like David. To respond in confession with a humble heart. And then as you learn of the consequences, this is where you really struggle, right? As you learn of the consequences, don't grow angry and bitter. Realize that the discipline that you're facing is not because of a lack of love from your parents, but quite the opposite, because they love you and because they serve a holy God. We look and see how God responds in holiness and justice to sin. And your parents represent him. So try to respond in humility. Perhaps even turning in prayer to God for the strength to face discipline with a good attitude and not go stomping down the hallway, right? Now one thing I think some of you parents are wrestling through still is, is the death of the child in this passage. Perhaps you're satisfied with the discussion Earlier, that God is not unjust in taking the life of the very young, or that it isn't necessarily an evil thing to die early, particularly if we are immediately in the presence of God. But instead, perhaps what you're thinking at this point is about the situation in which there's no apparent discipline. I think of the young man, for example, that we prayed for several months ago, rear-ended by a car and suddenly ending up in a hospital near death. I think of children who die shortly after birth due to a birth defect. And sadly, we live in a cursed world, and there are such things as birth defects. There are distracted drivers and more. But God is still in control, 
And David's response is still the appropriate response. We turn to him in prayer and intercede on behalf of our loved one. Will the Lord rescue? Will he heal? Perhaps. We learn from our passage that David would not eat. That's due probably partially due to grief and depression, but we also learn that it was due to fasting. So I think we see in David this whole commitment to his request of God. It suggests a posture for us as we appeal to God in these desperate types of situations to accompany that with fasting. And for seven days, David sought the Lord. And friends gathered around him, attempting to console him, trying to get him to eat. One commentator says, ironically, during these seven days, David's behavior reminds us of Uriah. I like that observation. He says, who had refused the pleasures of normal life out of faithfulness to God and his people. Uriah's faithfulness had cost him his life at David's hand. And at the last, David has become like Uriah. It is interesting, I think, that seven days was often the period for mourning after a death. You see this with Joseph and his brothers who mourn their father Jacob's death for seven days, according to Genesis 50. You see it with the nation of Israel that fasted and grieved over Saul's death for seven days, according to 1 Samuel 31. It's not to say that this is how long a person should grieve after a death. It is to say this was the formal length of mourning. It showed respect and love in the face of loss. And it's likely what's happening here. David has heard the verdict. And his mourning is before it happens. It explains what we read in verse 18, namely that the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. They were expecting David to mourn after the death, and they're looking at his response now as if he's mourning before and saying, if we tell him he's dead, what is going to happen? He's going to do himself some harm, is what they say. And what happens next is what I I really want to focus on. Read again with me verses 20 through 22. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went into his own house. And when he asked, they set the food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. In other words, this is not the expected response. David gets up, he goes to worship, then he eats food. His response reminds us of Job, who according to Job 1.20, after the loss of possessions and children arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. What, a, what an amazing statement by Job. And David's response is the reverse of custom, but he explains, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me. That the child may live. 
I'm acting as if God is going to follow through on his judgment. I'm mourning for him, but God may relent. And and now that he is dead, why should I fast? I cannot bring him back to me. And I want you to see three things that are vital from those verses. First, David still trusts God even in the face of the death of his son. And I'm struck by the fact that the first thing David does after cleaning himself up is to go to worship before he goes back to his own home. Did you catch that? He goes to the house of the Lord before he goes to his own house. And how vital it is in the face of crushing, life-altering loss to remember to give thanks and praise to God. David's response tells me that he believed that God was sovereign over the life and death of his child. The question is, do you believe that? Would you believe that in David's place? It is always easy to second-guess things and imagine a thousand possibilities that would have led to a different outcome. If only I had prompted her to get tested earlier. If only we hadn't decided to go into town. If only, right? We could... We torture ourselves. And while understandable, these questions have at their core the assumption that there may be many possible outcomes. And we just happened upon the one that resulted in tragedy. If only we had chosen choice B. But God is not surprised by the events of life. Nor does He wait at the end of some branching tree of possibilities and say, well, I wonder which one. Like a a Plinko game, right? Zero. Too bad. That's not the God that we serve. God is not surprised. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when we worship in the face of loss, we acknowledge that God is not only sovereign but also that He's faithful. And even that He is merciful. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And because we believe this, and because we believe that He is sovereign over all things, we therefore believe that death is not more powerful than God. Death is not more powerful than God. Robert Dabney, a theologian from the 19th century, once wrote to a grieving mother who had lost her child. He said, No doubt affliction seems to you now a far more intense and real thing than it ever did before. The griefs of human life are far more awful and terrific to you than they ever seemed. But the power of grace is the master of them all. Your loss is great. But the grace of your master is very, very great. Your noble boy is gone. I remember him. But he sleeps. Let the master have him. And it wasn't much after that that actually Dabney lost his own son. And he wrote this poem. Five summers bright, our noble boy was lent us for our household joy. Then came the fated wintry hour of death and blighted our sweet flower. They told me, weep not 
for thy gem is fixed in Christ's own diadem. His speedy feet the race have run, the foe escaped, the goal have won. I chode the murmurs of my breast with this dear thought, and then addressed my steps to wait upon the Lord and with His saints to hear His word. Then, thus, I hear their anthem flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But how, I said, can this sad heart in joyful praises bear its part. It hath no joy, it naught can do, but mourn its loss and tell its woe. And then I thought, what if thy lost is now among the heavenly host? And with the angel choir doth sing, glory to thee, eternal King. Let patience work till we be meet to dwell in bliss at Jesus' feet. Then death, once dreaded, friendly come and bear us to our lost one's home. Yea, he shall teach this voice to raise as angels taught him heaven's ways. And I who once his steps did led shall follow him to Christ, our head. Very good words to remind us how to think of the lost. Loss of those who die in Christ. This is why David went immediately to worship God. But all of this begs the question, what should we think of the death of a child? In other words, do we expect that children who die in infancy go to heaven? Well, David certainly expected that his child would be with the Lord. As he says, I will go to him but he will not return to me. Unless we think that David is just saying, well, I'm going to go to the grave, because a lot of people do that. They treat the Old Testament believers like David is not having a full understanding of uh, future times. And so they just treat it as, I'm going to go to the grave to be with him. Yet we see these inspired words of David in Psalm 23, 6, where he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David believed he would have an eternal future. He believed his son would be there. What gave him that confidence? Well, while the Bible contains no straightforward statements regarding children who die as infants, it does encourage Christians to have confidence in God's eternal plan regarding their covenant children. God told Abraham in Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. There is no reason to believe that David had some special knowledge about where his son would end up. Rather, he realized God had promised Abraham God had promised Abraham that the children of believers have a relationship to God's grace through the faith of their parents to the degree that we should have confidence that the Lord is God to us and to our children. It's not a guarantee. 
But when we read passages like Malachi 2.15 that tell us that one of the things that God desires through the marriage of a godly man and a woman is godly offspring, or when we hear Jesus' words in Matthew 18, which say, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I believe we are expected to have confidence that the children of God's people would await us in heaven. Of course, ultimately, God is sovereign. And His will is to be done. But it is comforting to believing parents that God has committed Himself to be the Lord of their children. And I believe that there are enough things in the Scriptures that speak of that confidence, speak of those promises that began with that promise to Abraham. And now we are spiritual heirs of that promise to Abraham that our hope for the souls of our children rely on God's faithfulness to His covenantal promises and our confidence in His Word. I like what commentator Richard Phillips writes. He says, Grieving parents should trust that their children in heaven are better provided for by God than they could have been with us. We think especially of children who are lost in the womb. They suffer and lose nothing by missing out on this wicked world. Covenant children who die at birth will never breathe the air of a fallen world, but spend their entire conscious existence amid the glories of heaven. Like David, we should trust that God has taken our departed children to himself. In any case, we leave the future to God's wise rule. We know of at least one case in the Bible, he says, which a covenant child died because of God's favor toward him. Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, died while others lived. Not because he was condemned by God, but because he was beloved by God. And God explained in 1 Kings 14 that he only of Jeroboam would come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Phillips concludes, examples like this may comfort grieving parents so as to help them place their child and their grief into the hands of a wise and a trustworthy God. So the third thing that we learn from these last verses of 2 Samuel 12 is that while God does discipline us for our sin, He is also willing to comfort us in our repentance. Look at verses 24 and following right after the passage. It says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, sent a message by Nathan the prophet, and so we called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. Perhaps the biggest surprise of all is that God, in his mercy, not only forgave David for such a heinous sin, but actually put away that sin by comforting David and Bathsheba with another son. And some of you may ask, well, does that mean that David just benefited in the long run from sin? He gets Bathsheba, he gets another son. It's a good question, but 
the answer must always be no. We never benefit from sin. We benefit from God's grace. That's a huge difference. What we do learn from this is that even if we have completely messed up our life, even if we think we have arrived at a place of no return where God can't possibly look upon us again with favor, then there is still hope. There is hope because of God, not because there's something good in us. The purpose of God's discipline is that we take sin seriously and that we turn to Him in humility and trust. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our God is good. He loves us. He disciplines us because He loves us. We face the consequences of our sins. Sometimes they are difficult, trying circumstances. But our God is also merciful and good, and He comforts those who are afflicted. And I close with the words of David that he wrote in Psalm 30. He says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints. Give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. May this be the praise and glory of our own hearts even in the face of of the difficult circumstances that we face. Whether it's due to consequences for our sin or simply living in a cursed world, our God is sovereign. He is good. He is merciful. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word and the comfort that it gives us. Thank you for the opportunity to struggle through difficult things, even as Peter once spoke of difficult passages of Paul, I think of this as a difficult passage as well, and there are many more throughout the scriptures. And yet, Lord, you help us to work through these, and at the end, we always must come back and say that you are holy, you are good, you are just, perfect, merciful kind, gracious. Lord, help us to have the faith that we see ultimately in David, that we see in Job. Help us to have confidence in your promises even when we don't know the end from the beginning like you do. Help us, Lord, ultimately just to live 
in the spirit that we see in Psalm 30, that we will give thanks to you forever, for you turn our mourning into dancing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.